Okay, good morning. We're back in Acts chapter 13, which is a fairly long section. I know we've been in it for a long time, but uh, this is one of the longer narrations of one of Paul's sermons in Acts. And I think the reason Luke gave us so much material here, and it's almost prototypical of how the gospel was preached, what the content was, the fact that it was done first in a Jewish synagogue, but then the Gentiles get involved and we have some issues that come up. So Luke really puts this as a very central part of Acts in this whole big, long synagogue speech in Pisidian Antioch. But we'll begin with prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, that we can gather in your name. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for the fellowship of the saints. And may you help us learn and grow and understand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Now a little preview. I'm going to wait a little bit until make sure more whoever's here is going to be here. I'm going to deal with the passage that started the whole King James only movement because it's in our text here, Acts 1342. And I see Dane is here. I want to make sure he was here. But I'll wait a bit and see if a few more people come. And I'll show you where the King James Only movement came from, what verse caused all the issue, and why it's such a pernicious thing. I won't go into great detail. Dana has a ton of material on this that maybe I'll present sometime. But let's get to verse 44. Acts 13, 44. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. Now, we, now, I don't think this would mean, it doesn't mean every single person that lived in the city in Antioch. This is a figure of speech. But it meant a representative group that was a very large group that showed up. It, it, it caused... Attention citywide. Let's just say that way. It's like if we say everybody was at the Twins game. Well, that means it was well attended. We don't mean nobody was anywhere else because they wouldn't all fit. And so we might wonder where could it happen that they'd have such a big meeting. The, the synagogue certainly couldn't have handled that big of a crowd and have anybody heard. So I have a picture here from my, there it is. This is what scholars think would be the most likely location where the assembly would have happened. And this here is, uh, this is a picture from recent years, ruins at the city in Antioch. And you can see what a big area this is. And it's the ruins of a, a, a temple that was dedicated to Augustus. So let me read the caption I have with this particular slide. Built sometime around A.D. 25, this temple was dedicated to Augustus, who was honored as the founder of the city, constructed in front of a two-story semicircle portico and adjacent to a large colonnaded courtyard with about 150 columns 
this podium temple became the focal point of the city. So it's not unreasonable to suppose that this would be the potential site anyhow where the city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Luke isn't claiming they all got into that little Jewish synagogue. Do you see how big that is? And what a big area where people could gather and voices can carry. There's kind of a natural amphitheater going on there. And again, yet more proof that the places and events that the Bible describes are historically believable. This isn't a mythological situation. It's real cold, sober history, as Paul said in later in Acts, in Acts 26, talking about Messiah. Uh, so they probably gathered outside somewhere, possibly at that temple that I just showed you the ruins of. I got yet another new quality commentary on Acts in recent months by a guy by the name of Schnabel. And let me cite him. Most scholars interpret the phrase, almost the whole city, as a hyperbolic comment that is meant to show that the missionaries had a large audience. So, <clears throat> there's also a qualification, almost, nearly, it says the New American Standard, so it's not claiming total literal everybody in the city. Uh, Schnabel says also, it should be noted that Luke does not claim that the large crowd gathered at the synagogue. Obviously, the synagogue in Antioch cannot have accommodated thousands of people. The crowd could have gathered in front of the synagogue or perhaps the large open space of Tiberia Plataea in front of the Temple of Augustus. That's what I just showed you. Or in another square. Uh, so that could have very well been where it happened. But it's very feasible that what Luke says here, and we know that it happened because it's inspired scripture, but there's also historical reliability here. Um, included in this crowd, this isn't just simply a Jewish crowd, but we'll see that there's also Gentiles now who are showing an interest in this new teaching that's coming into town, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's claim is that Jesus is indeed the promised Jewish Messiah as predicted in Scripture. We've seen that here as we've been studying. Now let's go to verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Now interestingly, there was a rather good reception immediately in the synagogue as we saw earlier they listened and they wanted to hear him again but now that the Gentiles are wanting to hear and getting interested now we got some more conflict developing and this is a theme 
that we'll see throughout the rest of Acts. It's already happened. It's going to continue. It's going to intensify. And there's a battle that goes on in Acts that's just going to get started here. And it'll get more and more intense. It'll lead to the church having to make some decisions about what's going to be required of Gentile converts vis-a-vis the law of Moses. And it's going to lead eventually for Paul going into Jerusalem to stave off a Jewish revolt against Christianity being what he says in Ephesians, it's the one new man. Ephesus becomes a very important place, as we'll see as we go through Luke. And uh, Paul doesn't want the church, in order. obviously the Holy Spirit doesn't want the church to be divided in two so that there's a Jewish church that keeps the law and a Gentile church that doesn't. Because the mystery that's now revealed is that God from all eternity intended that the church be, quote, one new man, Ephesians 2.15. That is so, so important. And as I continue to preach in Ephesians, I will keep referencing that central passage in Ephesians 2, the one new man. That is God's intent and purpose, that there be one church. The term jealousy, zealous, and it was used earlier in Acts 5.17 in a similar context. Let me read that to you. And the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. Eric, could you turn there and just kind of look at the context and tell us what's going on? KX 517. When are you going to get those reading glasses? <laughs> I'm holding off. That's right. He thinks he's young. Yeah. <laughs> You're definitely too I'm young mistaken. for reading glasses. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. I, I see. Yeah, so here, what's interesting is the, this is where the apostles, they're doing signs and wonders and they're preaching. And later, they're going to be obviously forbidden to teach in the name of Christ, mm-hmm. but they refuse to do so. They have to obey God rather than men. Yeah, we'd rather obey God than men. And one thing I thought it was interesting when you were teaching through this section is the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they don't mind the apostles doing miraculous deeds. What they're upset about and what they forbid is the preaching of the gospel. Right. And what that really shows us is where is the power? It reminds me of, do you remember, um, Bob, you've taught through this in Mark 2, where you have the paralytic man, he's led down through the thatch roof, and he says, your sins are forgiven, Jesus says. Oh, yeah, uh, they didn't like that. I think it's in, isn't it also Luke 7? It is. It's in Luke as well. And I, yeah. I, don't know if it's, I think it's in Mark and Luke. Okay. But the point is, is what did the man need? Did he need forgiveness of sins, or did he need to have healing? Well, Jesus says, so that you know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, take up your mat and walk. So he does heal him, but he shows the greatest miracle that everyone needs is conversion. That's why Satan is trying to prevent that. Yes. Using, ironically, the leadership of Israel, they're trying to prevent, uh, Satan's trying to prevent the gospel. Exactly. That's very astute. The key issue in Luke Acts is forgiveness of sins. It's included in the Great Commission narrative. And there is a necessity for people 
to obtain an eternal perspective and have a value system that's grounded in that eternal perspective. If we have a temporal-only perspective, that the only thing that matters in this is in what happens in this life, then you look at that paralytic and you think there's something seriously wrong if Jesus just leaves the guy lame and says your sins are forgiven. Because you can't tell whether that's really true. Well, look at this guy. Is his, are his sins really forgiven? I don't. We can't tell. But we know he's still lame. And if you're just temporal, you're thinking, well, if you're not going to solve his real problem, who wants all this religious talk about forgiveness of sins? It's just nothing. But Jesus shows the priority by saying that first and then healing him, which no one could, would be able to do unless Christ is who he claims to be, the very apostle, prophet, yea, even the Son of God, the Holy One sent from heaven. He heals him, and now we know how important forgiveness of sins really is because that's eternal. Lame only lasts through this life. And there are other such sayings of Jesus in the Gospels that point to the same thing. Liberal theology ignores all of that. Honestly, they just they don't seem to even read about it. Because I was just yesterday somebody sent me a YouTube video of, of a liberal who happens to be somebody I'm researching for an article. And all they know is well, it's pretty obvious. Just read the Bible. We're supposed to make light. We're supposed to take care of the poor. And, and, and uh, of course, in his mind, that means vote for socialist politicians. And Jesus said that over and over again. Somehow, everything Jesus ever said about hell, they never read that verse. Forgiveness of sins, they never read that verse. Better to go lame through this life. Uh, than to be whole and go into hell. They don't read any of that verse. So if you don't take the Bible for in the whole context of everything that's said, you don't understand what Christ is teaching. And if you pick and choose, you can make it sound like Jesus is a social justice warrior. Uh, But the point isn't that we shouldn't be just in how we relate to one another, but that God saves unexpected people that the religious establishment despised. But the issue is being saved. That they don't care about because if we believe there's a hell to be saved from, then they hate us. No matter what we do for the poor, they're still going to hate us because that's what they hate. The gospel, the blood atonement, forgiveness of sins, repentance from dead works, and so on. The liberals hate that. And I wish they would just admit, we don't believe the Bible, so we're not even going to talk about it. That'd be more satisfying than pretending they care. By the way, the guy I'm talking about is Richard Rohr, an ecumenical, panentheistic, Catholic uh, monk of some sort, and who endorsed Brian McLaren. The emergent guy. All right. So blaspheming, notice they're contradicting 
Because the jealousy means this new doctrine of messianic salvation through Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead is attracting big crowds. Even the Gentiles are interested. And that's going to hurt our status as being the important people around here. And we don't like this. And so notice they were contradicting what Paul said and then blaspheming. But blaspheming here in in Luke, Luke Acts, I mean, is against Christ. In other words, since Christ really is God incarnate, he really is the proper object of our love and our worship, and he is who he claimed to be, then to speak evil against Christ is to blaspheme God. That's the whole point. And the early uh, apologists, I have printouts from that. I don't know if we're ever going to get to it, if if I decide to discuss it at some point. But an early Christian apologist pointed out that it became part of the synagogue um, um, liturgy to curse Christians and to blaspheme Christ. It became something they just did every time they gathered. And you see that in Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo. So this was just became how they did. Anybody who believes in Christ is cursed and damned, and may it be. Amen, amen. So there you go. So it's all good until we find out that Christ is who he said he was. Zela, zela, here, jealousy is zelos. It is literally translated zeal. It could be in some context used in a good sense, such as in John 2.17. Who wants to look up John 2.17 where zeal is used in a good sense? Raise your hand when you found it. Norm is looking like he's going to be quick. Let's come over to Norm here. He's going to find it. Pressure, Norm. John 2.17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for the house will consume me. Yeah, yeah. so there was zeal for God's house. And so that was a positive thing in that context. But here it's translated jealousy because their zeal was against Christ and the gospel. Now, earlier, Paul had been one with that same kind of response as we read about earlier in Acts when Paul was attending the stoning of Stephen and then was breathing out threats of slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. But if you want to turn with me, Turn to Acts twenty six eleven, and I'll read that one. Acts twenty six eleven. Acts twenty six is very very important in Luke Acts. It's summing up some of the themes that got started early in Luke. But here is a reminder of Paul's past. Acts twenty six eleven, and as I punish them often in all the synagogues. Paul said to this Roman leader, I think Festus, I tried to force them to blaspheme. 
and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. So Paul said that in his hatred of Christ and the gospel that began with Stephen's speech and the stoning of Stephen, Paul wanted to force Christians, Jewish converts to Christ, to blaspheme. And how that ended up being an issue that developed. Uh, and the Romans ended up doing the same thing. They wanted to force Christians to deny Christ. In other words, curse Christ. If you'll curse Christ, then all's okay. Later apologists, I think Tertullian may have done this, said, said to the Romans, well, this is an odd thing. When you, uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, material that I, I I found interesting when I was a new Christian. I was in Bible college. I studied the early church fathers and particularly the very early apologists such as Justin Martyr and Tertullian. So he, he says, uh, this is curious. So you're going to throw us to the lion unless we deny Christ. Well, that's odd because all the other criminals, you're trying to make them confess. And us Christians, we're willing to confess from the beginning. And you're trying to make us deny, well, we're already willing to confess. What kind of justice system do you have? And uh, very interesting that some brilliant people were converted in the early centuries and just started to do apologetics and writing to defend the faith against the attacks of both the Romans and the Jews who had rejected Christ. And, by the way, when it talks about the Jews here, it's not anti-Semitic. This is Luke's way of speaking about the leadership that was conspired against Christ uh, and his followers. This, because the early church was composed mostly of Jews. So this would be the people with power and authority, like Saul of Tarsus had been, who attack any Jews who believe in Christ. And so they were uh, contradicting and blaspheming. They're the ones who reject Christ. Contradicting in the Greek is anelego. Anelego. And it literally means to speak against. No, it's anti-lego. I, I got such small print here. Anti, anti is against. Speak against. And his first use in Luke Acts is back in Luke 2.34. I'll quote that to you, Luke 2.34. This is a preview of what happens in Acts. See, Luke repeats Greek terms he introduces ideas that are important early in Luke that come to fruition later in Acts. It's a good literary device. It's a little preview. He does that with people. Somebody will show up, like a Barnabas who was just there, later becomes important. Paul shows up, later becomes important. So here in Acts Luke 2.34, Simon, Simeon, 
blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, quote, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. In fact, why don't we all turn to that? I want you to be very aware of how Luke is so skillfully telling us about Christ. The gospel in the Acts, Luke Acts, is one of the finest pieces of literature, in my opinion, from the ancient uh, in the ancient Greek that we have that's extant, along with things like Hebrews and so on. So notice it's this Simeon who, who, according to the literary context, speaking for God prophetically, is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. What does that imply? This is the Christ, but it's going to cause, because whenever God acts in history and intervenes, two things happen. Some people are saved and others are damned. We saw that in that supper narrative, remember? Like the Lord's Supper or the Mishnah or whatever, like even in Esther. Bob, what verse? We are in Luke 2.34. Luke 2.34. I may have said it wrong. I wouldn't be surprised. Luke 2.34. I want you just to look at it in your Bible to see. So if you're just reading Luke Acts for the first time, remember it's two-volume work, you read this, and you keep reading, eventually what Simeon says literally happens. And not only happens in the Gospel of Luke, it continues to happen in Acts. Okay? So the child is appointed. By who? God. The fall and the rise. Some will be judged. Some will be saved. In Israel, the Jew first. So this happens first in Israel and then goes later to the ends of the earth. And then and a sign to be opposed. There's our word for contradicting. Anti-lego. Anti-lego. To speak against. So some people will oppose and contradict. Others will believe and confess and glorify God. And one thing the true gospel rarely causes is neutrality. Because if the gospel is preached for what it really is, it creates either hostility or rejoicing. It's just that way. It's divisive. So if your goal is to be popular with the masses then I think you might as well forget about being a gospel preacher. All right. Now, um, so we have Luke 2.34. Someone, once you find it, let me know. Luke 20.27 uses the same word for contradict. Luke 20.27 I'll just look up a couple of these in Luke and then maybe another one in Acts. Somebody have it? Luke twenty twenty seven. 
All right, we got it over here. Luke 20, 27. Yes. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. Yeah, they, who say that there's no resurrection. In other words, they oppose or contradict the resurrection, literally in the Greek. They contradict the resurrection. Further? That's what it says in the... Well, let me look it up in my Greek here. Luke twenty twenty-seven. Unless I had the wrong reference in my notes here. Happened to have the Greek... Yep, anti legantes. It's a participle opposing, contradicting the resurrection. So that's, that was correct. The reason we, I love the fact that in God's providence, I took two years of Greek in Bible college and then later decided to get back into it again. It really helps me read Luke Acts because these repeated terms are there. To, to get the attention of the readers. And you see, for centuries, for whatever reason, Christian teachers treated Luke and Acts as if they were two totally separate entities. And so the Luke would be thrown in with the synoptics and even created these gospel parallels. Have you ever seen that? Where they're trying to throw everything together. I, I hate that. It's only gear, doing is guaranteeing as if the Holy Spirit didn't inspire things correctly by having the Gospels the way they are. Each writer has his own way of making a point. But whatever the case, it shouldn't be revolutionary to believe Luke acts a two-volume work because Luke says it is in the beginning. And so to Theophilus, but just recently, just using really good reading abilities like Robert Tannehill, who wrote this two-volume work, The Narrative of Unity of Luke Acts, scholars are starting to see the brilliance with which Luke wrote. So if you want to understand Acts, first you've got to understand Luke. So one of the things Tannehill did to prove that was to like what we're doing right here, Going back to Luke 2.34 to show a theme is introduced early in Luke that isn't finished with until toward the end of Acts. In fact, that leads me to going on a little bit further. I have Acts 28. I hope that's correct. Maybe, Eric, could you quickly look up Acts 28.19? I think I may have the wrong reference written down here. Because I think it's 26, but I may be wrong. Is there an Acts 28:19? What does it say? It says, but because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. Well, that was correct. What's the old joke? I thought I made a mistake once, but it turns out I didn't. <laughs> But I was mistaken that I made a mistake. Yeah, well, 
Yeah, oh yeah, it was 28:19. So whoever's listening, that's the verse. So we, here we have in Luke 2:34, Simeon, and again, how do you know who speaks for God? You learn how to read. The, the author will let you know whose words are from God by the context. That's how you know. And Simeon's are. And the way Luke will often do it is he'll say the Holy Spirit will come upon somebody. Then they speak for God. So he says, this little baby, this child, Mary, is going to be ante lego contradicted. This little child. The rise and fall of many in Israel will be contradicted. That's in Luke 2. You get all the way to the end, Acts 20. 819 and the same word is again used with the very first word in the verse I'm looking at my Greek anti-legutone but contradicting or speaking against uh, when the Jews spoke against it it's the same people who are contradicting and speaking against so let me go a step further with this literary analysis of Luke-Acts. Why would Luke be writing about this? To Theophilus, which is a Greek name, which either means generically a friend of God or it's a real name of an actual person. That's debated. But either way, there's an apologetic intent here. And the apologetic has to do with this. The skeptical world around will say this. So you Christians, like Luke the physician, are claiming that this Jesus of Nazareth really is the Jewish Messiah. Do you think we're so stupid that we're going to believe that the actual Jewish people don't even want their own Messiah? They've been looking for the son of David for all these centuries. Why would they not want him? That's not believable. But Luke is thwarting that objection and answering it by how he lays out this narrative that the Holy Spirit speaking through Simeon prophesied that this would be a sign to be opposed. And then later in the Acts, when Paul is going before Roman officials, is repeating that same thing and does so also in Pisidian Antioch and then later in Luke. And so this is a theme. And then there's Old Testament scripture that's been cited that says the, the stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. And so this is all predicted and it happened as it was predicted. And so therefore that's not a valid objection. And therefore Jesus really is the Messiah and therefore you should repent and believe in him. Now, uh, who was it, Festus, who said, well, you're going to persuade me? And Paul said, yeah, I hope you and everybody else who hears me. The compassionate thing for Christians is to earnestly desire the forgiveness of sins to go to everyone. The people really would believe. Yes, Harry. I, I think you're... Uh 
connection to Isaiah, the cornerstone that was rejected. I think that's very astute. I think that's prevalent in that uh, Luke 2.34 passage. So think about Isaiah 28.16. God promises he's going to put a stone in Zion, and there's going to be some who stumble on the stone. They trip over it to their destruction. But there's others who are going to trust and stand on it. And if you trust and stand on the stone, you're going to be saved. Well, in Isaiah's day, God had promised that the Davidic king would always reign in Jerusalem. So why is Israel trusting in nations rather than trusting in Yahweh for preservation? Didn't God promise the Davidic stone was laid in Zion? So the challenge for them is, will they believe those promises? Fast forward to Luke. Now the Messiah is there, the ultimate son of David. Will they trust or not? They're either going to stumble over the stone laid in Zion yeah. or they're going to stand and believe They'll either be on saved it. or crushed. It's exactly right. It's been going all the way through Israelite history. You either stand on the this promises is, or you fall over the promises. Right, and that's always been the issue. And the reason faith is so central, salvation by faith, the reason for making alliance with the pagan nations was always one and the same, unbelief. Yes, amen. Well, I don't want to listen to the prophets who said, don't go trust Egypt. And then they said, no, we're going to go to Egypt because they got horses and chariots. Right, right. Somehow they forgot it was the horses and chariots that chased them out of Egypt. <laughs> Isn't there irony? I love the Bible. You know what? I've been doing this since the early 70s, and I'm, and now you know what year it is, 2019, but I feel like I'm still just maybe getting to the point of scratching the surface. It's just learning is so exciting. Yes, Brother Eric. Yeah, I just actually, you just mentioned the word themes, you know, and I was just thinking about this stuff just before you said that, and I thought, how can I say this? And I think you actually said it very well, so I won't try to add to that, but God knows us. He knows people, obviously, and he knows that we need, we need, we need to see repetition. We need to see patterns. We need to see this. And this is why it's so important to study all of Scripture, including the Old Testament, because those themes, in fact, we wouldn't have enough time in this hour to, to name all of the themes. But, you know, themes like man's depravity, man's sinfulness, how we want to believe Amen. other things, all of that. We don't have time to even go through all. But this is where it's so important for all of the body of Christ to be reading the Bible and to continue. And that's a lifelong thing because there's always themes and, and, and there's always things to learn from it, you know? You just can't exhaust it. There's more evidence for this. Uh, Brian Beers, while, while we're doing this, look up Acts 28-22. So now we're getting really toward the end of Acts, and we'll see the po- apologetic intent uh, of Luke. And it uses this same word, antilego, to talk against. Okay, Acts twenty eight twenty two. But we desire to hear from you what your views are f- f- concerning this sect. It is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. Yeah, it's everywhere, ante lego. Everywhere, it's contradicted everywhere. In other words, everybody's against Christianity. What do you have to say about it? Sign to be opposed. So Luke 2 begins with that theme. Acts 28 ends with it. That's part of the proof 
that Luke Acts were intended to be read as a two-volume work. If you only say Luke and you skip to Acts, you wouldn't see it all tied up at the end. Simeon's prophecy is proven to be from God because it's true and it confesses the true God. It keeps the two tests of false of true prophets versus false ones from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 13 says even if the sign comes true, but they're telling you to follow after some other God, that it's a false one. And then, was it 18? Yeah, the other one's 18. Yeah, yeah 18. Where if it doesn't come true, it's false. Because God cannot speak falsely. God cannot lie. And then that word, by the way, is used elsewhere in the New Testament. Um, Titus 1.9. Eric, could you look that up? Because you're going to be probably... Are you going to teach Titus too, besides Timothy? You know, I was thinking just doing first, second Timothy. Okay, well then do it now. (laughs) (laughs) Titus 1.9. All right. It says, He must hold firm to the trustword trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Contradict is the same word. By the way, that's the whole theme, well, the major theme of the message I'll be giving, ironically. That's the role of the pastor from 1 Timothy 4. You have to teach the truth and refute those who contradict it. Right. And contradict is this ante lego. And so it goes on even in Paul's ministry as he's writing later uh, that there are those contradicting I know there's a lot of people who think apologetics is worthless but they're wrong (laughs) Um, we are to refute those who contradict we're to give a reason for the faith and hope that it's within us and we need to give the reason and the evidence and I know a lot of people say well we live in a postmodern age when no one really believes in logic, reason, and evidence, so we got to do something else like create a religious experience that's so seductive and, and enjoyable that they'll come and be Christians just for the experience. Well, not anybody has ever been converted by being comfortable and entertained. Amen. You're converted through the true gospel of Jesus Christ, so don't worry about that. Yes? All right, now. What, what verse was that? The last verse we looked at, at Titus 1 9. Titus 1 9. Titus 1 9. Refute those who contradict. Now, I want to go back now that we're all here. Dana's here. He, I think he has this guy's book. I want to show you one of the primary verses that was used by a Seventh day Adventist to start the whole KJV only doctrine and that we've just covered it so I wanted to back up and show you um, why the Seventh-day Adventists in the early 20th century wanted only the King James used if you know uh, Seventh-day Adventists claim that you have to keep the law in certain degrees they follow this Ellen White who was a false prophetess and they have all kinds of laws, but one of which was this Sabbath worship. Okay? 
and the Gentiles are obligated to keep the Jewish Sabbath. That was Ellen White's false teaching. So here are the verses, Acts 13.42 in the, I'm using Lexham English Bible, which is a very current one, and then Acts 13.42 from the KJV. Lexham English Bible, and as they were going out, they began urging that these things be spoken about to them on the next Sabbath. Now, who was they there? The context shows you the people who had already been gathered in the synagogue as they normally would, the Jews that were there, and then some God-fearing Gentiles who were proselytes who were there in the synagogue. All right? That's what it said in the earliest and best manuscripts in most of our Bibles other than the King James. Now, Acts 13.42 in the KJV says, And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. And so this one Seventh-day Adventist scholar wanted it read this way because it would imply the Gentiles uh, that were going to be Christian needed to keep Sabbath. Because it, it has this word Gentiles wanting to be gathered in Sabbath for teaching, which is what Ellen White and the other who founded Seventh-day Adventism commanded. All right. Now, I have uh, written, I have the Greek here from the Textus Receptus, having been rebuked by sound scholarship. Some of the KGV only people said, well, the Textus Receptus is the only valid Greek manuscript because Erasmus was a good guy and Westcott and Hort were evil guys. And so we got to go with the good guy, Erasmus. Never mind that Erasmus was one of the primary opponents of the Reformation that debated Luther, but he's a good guy. Guess what? Who's a good guy and who's a bad guy isn't a valid argument. It's called an ad hominem argument. You can say, Ellen White was a really good lady. She did nice things. So Seventh-day Adventism must be true. I mean, I don't even know if she was. But if you go back to Deuteronomy 13 and 18, the test of prophets is that who's a good guy. Right. Let's just suppose Mother Teresa was a nice person. Does that make her universalistic doctrine valid? No. She was a heretic. So being a nice person doesn't prove anything. But the KJV only people go to that one. And see, once you get to the ad hominem argument, you're already losing. One thing I heard in a political debate back in the 80s was... uh, a debate between a conservative and a liberal. The liberal, first thing out of the gate, started berating the conservative. You're a wicked, evil person, and you don't care about anybody, and blah, 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 tearing into them. And the conservative said, well, you know, I understand that the ad hominem argument is the tactic of an exhausted mind, (laughs) but what really shocks me is that your mind is exhausted so early into the debate. (laughs) At least give your other arguments and then tell me I'm an evil person. 
I thought that was a great comeback. <laughs> You're a wicked, evil person, so you can't be saying anything right. All right, so can you see the difference? Well, there, there is very, very late and uncompelling textual evidence for the reading that would claim that the Gentiles in Pisidian Antioch were Sabbath keepers. I mean, they weren't anyhow. And really, it's not a good reading of the text. And we know earlier who was there were Jews and God-fearing Gentiles who had already been part of this. And later, when the whole city came out, we have this disruption going on. Seventh-day Adventist scholar Benjamin G. Wilkinson advocated the KJV-only position, and his book was first published in 1930. 1930, which is at least, what, 40 years before? Who came up with it as a Christian some years later? Uh, I don't know who the first one to come up with something, but it was much, much later. So KJV-only doctrine is a Seventh-day Adventist doctrine that was around long before any of these more recent people have come out promoting that idea. All right? Now, I have in, in my notes here both the critical text. Here's another absurdity that the KJV only people use in their discussion. They talk about the, quote, critical text. Well, they use a fear tactic, I believe. Maybe they don't think that's what it's going to create, but it does, that some wicked people decide to criticize the Bible. But, but what that is is begging the question. Because Erasmus's Texas Receptus is a critical text itself because there are thousands of different manuscripts, even if you just go to the Byzantine family. And even amongst them, you've got to do critical analysis to decide which one we're going to put together to create the one that I'm going to publish. But because... Westcott and Hort and then well, many other people have done the same process Erasmus did and came up with what is and isn't the best reading based on for one thing we've had a lot of really great finds of ancient documents in the last hundred years way after Erasmus why shouldn't we have the oldest and the best well they don't think we should because if we are, we're criticizing the Bible, and we don't want to do anything right, and there we're evil people. And the pastor is not using the King James as proof he doesn't want to tell you the truth. I've heard that argument. Now, I could easily counter with the same argument, but it'd be another ad hominem argument. You could just as validly say, validly say the pastor wants to keep you in the dark so he makes sure you can't have a Bible you can even understand. And make the analogy of the Latin Bible for the Catholics. 
So the ad hominem can go either way. You can't settle it. Yes, Lonnie. Uh, just a short comment. In the Bible, it says uh, in several places that these Christians met on the first day of the week. Uh, you know, it says that more than once. And the reason they met uh, was because of the resurrection of Christ. Yes, it, it is true that there's good evidence that early Christians did meet on Sunday. But then the doctrinal position, as we find in the book of Hebrews, is that days of worship are a matter of Christian liberty. So typically, if you were a, even, I know evangelical Christians in Israel, they republished one of my articles, so I've had quite a bit of contact with them. There's some solid Christians in Israel, by the way. Every Christian church in Israel meets on Saturday that I know of. Why? Because that's the day when nothing else happens. Whatever day is available in whatever place in the world you live, in whatever era of history you live, God wants Christians to be able to get together, so he made it liberty. Seventh-day Adventism takes away many liberties. In fact, when we sold our old building, the group I was with back then, to Seventh-day Adventists, we asked them if they wanted the coffee pots, and they looked at us like we had two heads. Well, it turns out Ellen White made coffee a sin. Excuse me, I think I need a little sip here. Yeah. No, you can't have coffee if you're Seventh-day Adventist. Yes, Dane, I want to hear from you for sure. Just like going back to what you, when you were talking about textual criticism. Yes. The, the, the um, King James only people think that textual criticism is such a horrible, awful thing. But in, in the front of your King James Bible, it says, translated out of the original tongues and with previous translations diligently compared and revised. That's textual criticism. Yeah. The King James translators were doing textual criticism. They do the same thing, and everybody does. And so I wrote about this in the 90s. I did copious research because they were claiming that Westcott and Hort were occultists and then um, cited things that sounded really damning of Westcott and Hort. Well, at the time, in the 90s, I had a guy that was helping me by the name of Jonathan Kronfeld. Because I was a current student at the seminary, I had access to the historical part of the library that had 19th century books that are rare and important. And I was able to go into that part of the library and look up the writings of Westcott and Hort and find the pages where this Gail Ripplinger claimed that these guys said these damning things. And some of the quotes were so... They would take like three words off of one page, two words or, or four words off of another page, and some other words off of a page either unknown or a few pages later, and throw them together to make a sentence that didn't even exist. The whole thing that this Gail Ripplinger did was a wicked hatchet job to claim falsely things that weren't true because they, she hated anybody who didn't use the King James, so Westcott and Hort have to be evil. 
I'm not here to tell you that I know the hearts of Westcott and Hort. But I know they didn't write what Gail Ripplinger said they did. She's a lying scoundrel. And somebody paid millions of dollars to have her book sent to ordained ministers all over the United States. I got one under that program. It was about this thick. And I went through copiously, as I said, every claim, page by page by page, went down to the 19th century part of the library, checked the material, checked the claims, did all the work, wrote a refutation of it. Then we wrote a booklet refuting it in even more detail. And then the KJV only people said, oh, Ripplinger isn't any good. Here, read this one. (laughs) What are you doing? I spent more time than anybody would spend on this. And now you told me I was spending it on the wrong book? Then why did you send it to me? No, that's not a good book. She was a woman. A woman shouldn't be writing. You should have this other book. And I, I've, up to the recently, we recent years, I said, do you want me to jump through hoops? Who do you think, what do you think a pastor does? You want me to spend the rest of my life, read this book, refute it. Okay, that wasn't a good one. Read this one, refute it. No, that wasn't a good one. Read this one. I'm not jumping through your hoops the rest of my life because you want me to read the King James Bible. And I refuse to do it. So they just won't, they leave the church. They won't come to church. They won't hear one word I preach. They would rather hear false teaching somewhere else out of the King James than hear the truth out of some other Bible. And I know I have passion about this, but it bothers me that Christians are treated this way by people that don't even know what they're talking about, some of whom I know they should know better. I'm calling on every King James-only teacher to repent, to desist, and to quit harming the body of Christ. God has ordained that his people can hear the word of God in their own language. I'd like to ask you, do, do one of you go to work and hear people saying things like, she cometh to work late, latest. One of the principles of the Reformation that Luther articulated was that people should be able to hear the word of God in the common vernacular. Okay, the common vernacular. The common vernacular is not 400, 500-year-old English. Just take a look. Is it reasonable to think that all the Gentiles in Pisidia and Antioch were just always going to the synagogue on Saturday? No. This, this is just really a bad reading. It wasn't in the original. And, but Seventh-day Adventists invented the doctrine. 50 years later, 40 years later, some people found, took that and ran with it and created a Christian version of the false Seventh-day Adventist doctrine. I don't care anymore who hates me and who rejects me and who, who thinks I shouldn't be listened to because after 45 years of preaching, i got to have enough integrity to tell you the truth and not fear man. I have a old King James right here and the old Texas Receptus, but most of the time there's no problem. So I'm claiming everybody who reads the King James is misled, but I've seen misleaders use it. 
word of faith says God had faith. We can have faith and we can have the God kind of faith and be creators like God was. Why do they use the King James only? Because there's some proof texts in there that you're not going to find anywhere else. The faith of God. Translating the genitive that way. So, there you go. I'm not going to read any more books on it. Made my statement. I refuted Gail Ripplinger. We, I'm not telling you I know the spiritual qualities of Westcott and Hort. But that was also many, many years ago. And all of this material has been looked at in much newer finds of more ancient the Dead Sea Scrolls and some of the stuff in the Alexandria area. We can do better than that, dear ones. And I hope that we can and we will. And please, please, we're not being much of a witness by behaving in such ways. Intimidating pastors all over America and telling people don't even go to their church unless they're using the King James. That is so wicked. I Honestly, it's anti-scholastic. That's what it is. Keep them dumb. No. Educate them. So let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, that we have good Bibles that we can read and study and understand so we might not contradict the truth of the gospel. Help us to be wise and understanding. Thank you for what you did in inspiring Luke Acts and helping us understand it, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. And Eric's going to preach to us. So it's a good day.